The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, joined, I almost as always, but it's not always, uh, joined as usual by my co-host, Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. We almost started the show prematurely because I mentioned something to Jonah, and uh, he almost flipped out. I told him to save it for the show. So let me set it up so that way everybody can uh, understand what we're talking about. Uh, Bet online. Uh, you can follow them on Twitter at bet online underscore AG. Yeah, visit their website at www.betonline.ag. I'm, I'm mentioning, I'm plugging them because it's going to, it's twisting. It's, it's, for, it's, for, it's further torquing Jonah with the point he's about to make. But um, they sent out some odds today. The opening 2022 NFL MVP lines. Josh Allen's the favorite in the entire league at six to one. You can bet on Josh Allen to win the MVP award. Bet one dollar to win you six, ten to win you sixty. You know, hundred to win you six hundred. Ahead of Patrick Mahomes, who roughly is seven and a half to one, followed by Aaron Rodgers. Then Dak Prescott and Joe Burrow are tied at 12 to one. I'm not going to give you the whole list, but let me just give you the next tier at 16 to one, Justin Herbert, Kyler Murray, Lamar Jackson, Matthew Stafford. Um, If you want to consider a non quarterback, Derek Henry's way down the list at 28 to one. Jonathan Taylor, also 28 to one. And then Cooper cup at 33 to one Debo Samuel, 40 to one. So it's dominated by quarterbacks. And uh, Josh Allen's number one. So here we are on February 25th. And uh, we uh, have upset Jonah Bronstein. How well, come? I mean, th- this is what we're leading the show with today. And yes, on February 25th. You when were shouting before I hit the record button. So I figure it's good. It's probably a good place well, to start. When you said the odds are out for the MVP, I was thinking NBA, NHL. Those have been some, out. Something that's in season. That's and, not newsworthy. Uh, you know, the NFL season doesn't even start for eight months. The MVP voting isn't going to happen for 11 months. And the winner. Six months, really. The, for... the NFL season starts in six months. All right. Thanks for correcting me on that. I, got, I mean, I guess then I'm wrong. I guess we are in NFL preseason countdown mode. I'm going yeah, to Indianapolis for the combine just next week. It's draft season. Yeah, great. Um yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, that Josh Allen is the favorite for the MVP, I think, is nice for Bills fans who like to see that kind of recognition and knowing that he's an MVP favorite. He's one of the best players in the league, one of the best quarterbacks in the league, the quarterback of one of the best teams in the league. Of course, 
he's going to be an MVP contender. He was an MVP contender the past two seasons. I think he was second in the MVP voting two years ago and, and didn't do quite as well this year, but was, I'm sure, in betting odds. He was the betting favorite for MVP at various points in the season. He was right um, after the Bills won at Kansas City when the Bills were Super Bowl the favorites to win the Super Bowl and Josh Allen was the favorite to win the MVP. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this at length yesterday with Jerry Sullivan. If you are into sports gambling and, and doing a prop bet on who the NFL MVP is and putting money down on that 11 months ahead of time, knock yourself out. And if you want to bet on your favorite player, I don't know if betting favorites is always the smartest play in those situations, but if you like those odds and you like Josh Allen and you want to make that bet, go for it. For us and other media people to be tweeting about it and talking about it, analyzing it, I think we're just feeding into this sports gambling industrial complex. That's why they put these emails out. It's not like this is really the time to place your bets on the NFL MVP season. So much could happen now. Josh Allen could get injured or things could change with other teams. It wouldn't really be wise to bet on the NFL MVP this far out from the season starting. Yeah, what if Aaron Rodgers ends up with the Denver Broncos? Uh, His odds are obviously going to change moving to it. So you don't want to bet on Aaron Rodgers now. His odds are based on the fact that he's with the Packers. What if he's not? And you've already put your money down. Well, Joel Staniszewski, friend of the show, longtime friend of the show, maybe the longest friend of the show, uh, who's never actually been a, you know, a part of the show. I don't want to put on too many caveats, but friend of the show, an F, a deep, deep F, uh, always says that it's foolish to bet futures, or at least he's really against it. Because what you're doing is giving the house, the book, the casino, an interest-free loan. You're giving them your money, and they get to do with it whatever they want for however many months. And they're probably not going to have to give it back to you because that's how gambling works. But you're essentially just, you're, you're fronting for several months. Your money is out of pocket. Yeah, and so they want people in the media and fans and analysts to promote these new odds and talk about it in order to get people to place a bet that would be unwise to place this far out. And, and, you know, it's part of the sporting culture right now, but, you know, to be leading the show with this or to have this be a a dominant part of the conversation in February, I find it offensive is not the word, but is it it offends my sensibilities because, and maybe this is because I cover more, high school and college sports. And there are real kind of the seasonality of sports. And I feel like we used to get this with the pros a lot more and it's fading away into that. The NFL is a 12 month season and everything else kind of just fits in underneath that. Whereas I used to like the rhythm of, you know, in the fall, it would be the NFL college football in the baseball playoffs. Then it would move into the winter where you would finish up with the football season and then that would kind of move into college basketball, March Madness. And then the NBA has its moments around Christmas and the all-star game, but it really comes into the main and hockey, stream. of course. Yeah. Hockey mm-hmm. as well. The hockey and basketball kind of run parallel, but they yep. have where they're a bit secondary in the early part of the season, but take over the media and the mainstream and the sporting culture when it matters the, the most spring and baseball in the summer and golf and, tennis and things like that kind of fill in the summer as well. And I guess we still have that, but the NFL has really saturated the media to the point where it isn't, you know, football, baseball, and basketball season. That's the wrong order. It isn't football, basketball, hockey, and baseball season. It's football season, football off season, football free agency, football draft, 
football preseason. I mean, we've done podcasts that were training camp previews and we've done, and then in preseason previews and then season previews and then game previews. And, and then the bye week comes along and it's like, let's just all, you know, sleep for seven days straight because if there's no football this week, there's nothing else. to talk. No, that's about. when you do your report cards. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's, you know, you can't even take a week off. And I think, and then, so that's a little bit of, I've made this point a handful of times on the show, so I'm not breaking new ground here when I say it. And I get repetitive on this. I get, I understand. I have points that I'm really proud of and I have a tendency to bring them back, but um, you have so many subsets to the NFL season, like is what you're saying. Obviously I think that if you were to extract the NFL draft and consider it its own event, it would probably be the fourth most popular sport in North America. It would be right under the NBA, or I'm sorry, under Major League Baseball, probably, or maybe even more popular than Major League Baseball. Nah, I don't want to say that. That's not true. But it's more popular than the NHL if you were just to just the NFL draft and make it its own its own thing. It's more popular than NASCAR. It's more popular than whatever anything anything else you want to throw out there: boxing, horse racing, whatever. It's I think the only thing that you could say is is bigger would be the regular. The, the NFL season itself, uh, when games are played, then the NBA, then Major League Baseball. Yeah, and I think that – And maybe even soccer. Maybe – maybe even, eh, I don't know about that. Well – All right, so maybe if you want to include it, soccer. It can – all – team fans of all 32 teams can find a way to get interested in the NFL draft, and it is – I think drafts in all sports, maybe not baseball, but I think drafts in all of the sports – uh, have some of that appeal and football being the biggest sport and the biggest. Or when you're good, like the bills operation. are, it used to be, you know, when you're talking about annual top 10 draft picks or top 12, top 13, whatever the bills had for almost 20 years. Um, it's a lot easier than it is now. I think for bills fans to get into it, but then you just shift your focus. It's not the draft it's free agency. So when you're good, then you think of, well, what sexy free agent are we going to get to help us get over the top? you know, to just to, to get, make that next step because you're drafting a little too late to be able to really project, you know, what, what the bills are going to do with that pick. So, but yeah, it, it doesn't, it, it's all of the part of, it's all part of the same system. And it's also an event for college football fans. Even if you aren't a huge NFL fan, or you're not in the NFL market, but you're in a college market, you look at where the Alabama players are being drafted and things like that. And, and I think the draft is, kind of worth the coverage it gets on draft day and draft week going into the draft. But there's mock drafts 12 months out of the year, and there's feverish draft coverage all through February and March leading up to the draft and covering all the pro days and the combine and the senior bowl to where I think personally I get sick of the draft coverage before the draft even arrives. And I guess it doesn't burn out enough of the fans to be a problem, but I just wonder, you know, how much coverage is too much to the point where uh, you're, you know, it, it can be too much. I, I don't think you need to be bombarded with NFL takes day after day after day. I thought this NFL season felt too long, in part because it was one extra week longer. But on a calendar, it wasn't any longer because they took away a preseason week. But it felt like, especially in Buffalo, a very long season because we went into the training camp previews talking about how the Bills were going to make the Super Bowl. And it was anticipating that very last playoff game leading into the Super Bowl for four or five months straight. And it just felt like a very long slog to get to that point where those stakes were actually on the line. Whereas the year before I thought was more entertaining and more interesting because it kind of 
took Bills fans and media, I think, a little bit by surprise how good the Bills were and how well that season was playing out. I wrote about it um, at one point during the season uh, that that's probably what even got the Chiefs off to their bad start is you get so close to the Super Bowl, you get used to the greatness and the, um, the excitement and the pressure and, like you say, the stakes are so high. And then to constantly hit that reset button, uh, there's a malaise. You know, when you're the, a team that's good, as good as the Kansas City Chiefs are, and I think now the Bills clearly are in that position too, Let's just get to the playoffs. Let's start it. Like do we got, we got to play these games in August. You know, we got We got to, we got to play these night games on a Thursday to get ready. Eh, let's, let's just get going. Oh, all right. Well, here it is now early September and we're playing. And it's like, eh. I mean, what happened to those games where it was live or die and, you know, the, 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 and our blood was pumping, you know, this is uh, playing the Washington football team uh, right now. Doesn't, doesn't do it for me. And because hey, they're human beings. And from a media perspective, especially for a beat writer, if you're telling stories day after day throughout the offseason and the mini camps and the preseason and then into the season, you're doing it even more. I mean, how many stories are there to tell? Eventually, you're running out of story ideas or you're telling the same stories over and over again or you're doing your position breakdowns and grades and, and you end up repeating yourself over and over again. And it kind of becomes a bit of an echo chamber, whereas you know, I don't know if it was always, you know, you go back a little bit further than me, both covering the league and, and being a bit older, if it was always like that, or if it was more of you got to tell the stories as they came along and not have to tell and create stories and create takes and create interest day after day after day in the off season. Yeah, I think really when that changed was when blogging uh, became a significant aspect of a reporter's job. And that is just the internet and the fact that uh, your employer can refresh its website at any point. So rather than filing, you know, I, I needed to file my story by seven o'clock to keep the guys on the desk happy so that way they could edit it, um, make any revisions, decide where in the paper they were going to put it, the headline, choose a photo for it, write the caption, all that type of stuff. Um, now it's, Right. Post it, you know, and you, and I don't even have to go through that filter. I mean, I do it the athletic, but for when I was at the Buffalo news, I wrote my own headline. I would choose my own photo. I would edit it myself. And when I hit the button, it was on the website immediately. Uh, and that was what was expected. Like get it up online, get it up online as, as quick as you can and then make revisions or, or come back with a different version for the newspaper. Um, so yeah, it was, yeah, that, that's the, there's a, you're constantly looking for content to please your employer, to please your readers. And I don't think it's this way anymore. And I think that the athletic really broke that mold, thankfully, of the feed the beast mentality. And ESPN also, you know, Mike Rodak would talk to us about that all the time. Um, it was unlike when I worked at ESPN, where we were constantly just posting, 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 posting. Uh, Mike Rodak, things had shifted by the time he was covering the Bills. Um, of course, I had four teams to cover, so I had a lot of lot to deal with as as the AFC East writer. But Mike would would pitch stories to his bosses, and they'd say, "No, nah, no, nah, that don't worry about it," you know. And he'd end up writing two or three things a week because um, they're only interested in things like quarterbacks and. But if Mike covered the Cowboys, they might have been more interested in. Dave oh yeah, 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 no, no, uh, yeah, absolutely related, but absolutely, but um, but there was that period thing. where 
where it was believed that you had to choke your, your readership with content and you just needed to constantly inundate inundate your subscribers, your audience, whether even on TV stations or at radio stations, they're all writers now. Um, but so you were constantly on the lookout for content. So guaranteed, you know, you see it at the Buffalo News all the time. Um, Christine Baranski or whoever, I, I get them mixed up. If somebody makes a comment on a talk show about being a Bills fan, it is written up as a story at the Buffalo News. They're just constantly looking for content. Whereas at the athletic, we're like, all right, well, somebody else can do that. We're going to give you, we're going to give you five really good things this week, as opposed to 50 things that make you shrug your shoulders. So I can guarantee you that, you know, Josh Allen MVP uh, is probably going to be written up somewhere uh, as a post as its own thing, because that, that gets that writer, editor, content provider through the day. And uh, I don't, I don't have to worry about my boss being upset with me. I get some clicks and, uh, and I can concentrate on the next thing. I think the thing that changed or has developed over time is the league having its own media properties and the NFL network and NFL.com and teams having their own team sites and Twitter pages and and all sorts of social media accounts and buffalobills.com or the NFL network aren't going to go off and cover other sports or other types of stories. They're going to need football content day after day, even if it gets repetitive and seems a bit, you know, out of season and, you know, not fresh content every single day at certain times of the year. And ESPN being a major business partner of the NFL also feeds into that beast, having daily shows and daily coverage of all the NFL developments, even when it's a little dry for new news. And then I think all of the rest of the media properties have to follow that. You can't be ignoring the bills for weeks at a time if national outlets are writing about the NFL and bills type stories. And they're all right. I'm not saying there shouldn't be daily coverage of the biggest team in town, especially in Buffalo. I feel like there's always a bill story that could be in the paper every single day, but the fan fever and all of the, yeah, I remember in our Gazette, I believe it was 2006, whatever year Drew Brees was leaving the Chargers. I did a free agency preview of the different players that were out there that the Bills could go after, and it came out the day before free agency. And that was a bit of a novel thing. Not that I was the first one to ever do that, but that wasn't always in the newspaper every March right before free agency opened. That was a bit of a new type of way to preview an offseason story. Now, now that story runs during the playoffs. In, yeah, right. Now there's fans have their own wish list of free agency people that they put out in January and they're debating this, that, and the other. And if you did that the week before free agency, people would be like, where you been? You know, we've been talking about free agency for right. months now. So, I don't know. Well, and I'll just make a quick point. I am going to the combine next week. And I think I've, I've mentioned this before. I have never once in my life done a mock draft. That's not a knock on people who do mock drafts, but I can't bring myself to do it because it's so much wasted energy. I get that people click on them. They are, they drive activity on your website. It's, and and it takes work. I mean, I'm sure that there are some people out there that just slap them together for the hell of it or, or take five or six other mock drafts and turn it into a consensus and say, okay, here's mine. Um, But I've never done one because it's, it's not going to be accurate. And writing because there's going to be a trade, you know, within the first four or five picks or somebody falls or anyways, it's, it's just so I just see it and I don't read them. I don't want to do them. Uh, And also the, and it goes into even previewing players, you know, going to the combine and sitting down with a guy that the bills might draft and talking to him for, you get maybe five minutes with him 
um, and think that you're going to get some deep insights uh, when he's on autopilot because he knows how to do interviews now. He's been coached. In fact, he's probably gone to a specialist, uh, an advisor, who's going to teach him exactly how to answer questions from GM scouts. And he applies that to the media too. So it's, you're not getting anything of the, the, that's coming from the heart. Uh, it's all borderline scripted. Um, but then the odds of you of your team drafting this guy are minuscule. So if you do 30 of these previews on 30 players, they can all, they're only going to draft seven, period. And the chances of you hitting the bullseye, I mean, just think of all the stories that have been written by beat writers and, and they never cover that guy because he's never on the team. And your readership, obviously, I mean, I can't as a reader, even as a football fan, try to apply college football player X to being a future Buffalo Bill when I know that the chances of that are one in 32. Yeah, and I think when beat writers spend too much time doing mock drafts, especially repeated mock drafts, the 2.0, 3.0, 7.0, however many seven-round mock drafts these guys do, it starts to reframe the way they cover the draft and cover their team in the offseason. And you start yeah, this, looking you're at, right. You're absolutely right. This guy sucks. This was a bad pick because yeah, I, didn't I didn't have him mock yeah. or yeah. Right. And I have to defend sort of, my mock. And I had this guy going 26th and the, the bears took him ninth. Therefore that's an awful pick. And then you have, and then you find yourself, yeah, defending it through your coverage. And this, it, we so, saw that a lot with Josh Allen, didn't we? In, in Buffalo. Right. And you see it. Bill's overdrafted. Oh, that was a bad pick because yeah. we didn't expect them to take them. And sometimes those are good picks. But I do like NBA mock drafts better than NFL mock drafts because they seem to be more reported. They really do align with how yes. the teams pick because they're reporters that talk to scouts and kind of do know this team likes this guy or this. the scouts have some consensus as to where these players are going to be picked. And in the NFL, the teams keep their secrets a lot better. And it is a lot of guessing and predictions. It's kind of like gambling coverage. And it's one of the things, I didn't say this when we did the podcast yesterday, I don't think journalists should bet on the teams and leagues they cover, not because it's a huge moral conundrum, and there may be a small moral reason why maybe that's not kosher to do, but I think it just changes the way you start viewing the games and you start thinking of things as to how they're happening, not just for your bets and the money that you're going to make, but whether you're going to be proven right or wrong. And even that comes down to making a prediction in the newspaper and you start looking at things like, you know, how did this align with what I said was going to happen instead of watching what happens and covering what actually happens and analyzing it and telling the story. It's more about val. It becomes a little bit more in your own brain about validating the predictions and the things that you said were going to happen and whether you were good at prognosticating things or not. If we have a journalist who's listening to this, um, or you may remember also, Jonah, the Associated Press Sports Editor's Code of Ethics, which is considered the gold standard. It was the first real code of ethics that was put uh, together for sports writers back in the days when teams used to send gifts to the reporters who covered the team, you know, cases of booze and sending them on junkets to cover this, that, or the other. And, you know, all the different things that you're not supposed to do as a journalist, accepting travel, accepting reimbursements on things, uh, you know, tickets to the games, you know, all the things that you're not supposed to do uh, to be considered an objective journalist. And I thought that betting on the games you cover was on that code of ethics. And it's not now, and maybe I've made it up or it's been removed, but 
Um, yeah, I don't know the specifics of that. Maybe I should because I write for the Associated Press. But I also feel like that was a no-no when I started in this business that's not a no-no anymore. Well, it was a, considered a no-no. I remember having a discussion with this with um, our assistant sports editor and, and lead columnist at the Las Vegas Sun when I worked there, uh, where gambling, has all, sports betting has essentially been always legal. Um, and you can do it. You know, you're at the fight. You know, you walk past the window. In fact, they have little kiosks on the concourse that are were available. Really, were only journalists and people who work there. You know, the the uh, you know the 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 concession staff and all that stuff had access to, and maybe a few VIPs. They had a little window set up where you could place the bets. And and his belief was that you should never bet on something that you cover. Um, even right there in Las Vegas where it's legal, uh, you're at the fight, you're covering De La Hoya, Pernell Whitaker, and uh, there you go. You know, you can bet, bet on it right there as you, before you even you know, walk to your seat with the credential around your neck. Um, What's so I know that that's a discussion of, I had 30 years ago. You shouldn't be a fan of the teams you cover because even though your bets might change week to week, you are rooting for one team to win or lose based on how you bet. And that will color your perception of the game and influence your coverage in some way. About even a fantasy football. You know, we were talking uh, when Jerry Sullivan was our guest earlier in the week and about the thin line that really doesn't exist anymore between fantasy sports and gambling. And and it was fantasy sports that really busted down the door that allowed sports betting to be uh, considered uh, mainstream and and legalized uh, by more and more States every month. Uh, seemingly. Um, let, let's say I have Josh Allen on my fantasy football team and I'm going up against Jonah Bronstein and Jonah, you always have a good fantasy team and I'm always in the middle of the pack. So I'm trying to knock Jonah off the pedestal and trying to uh, big win for me. And Josh Allen has the, he's the game he had against the Atlanta Falcons. And I don't win that week because Josh Allen has a bad day. Um, can that impact my coverage? I mean, it depends on what the stakes are, probably. I mean, the stakes that we play for, no. But let's say I'm in a daily fantasy thing uh, and I got, you know, I could win $5,000. Uh, if, if Josh Allen has a, has a good game, I, I win that day, but he didn't. So I end up with nothing. That could, I, I could see that affecting can, somebody's coverage. It can color your perception of the team and those players. And maybe if you're aware of that and acknowledge it, then it won't influence your coverage. But I think it can have some sort of maybe subconscious effect on how you view certain teams and certain players. And, and, you know, some of these people in the media are already off the deep end with how much they root for the team, or, or maybe they don't even realize that. Maybe it's another subconscious thing. So I, I don't know. There's a lot of degrees to that, but yeah, I, I don't, if, if, if an associated press editor put out a bulletin that said we shouldn't be in fantasy teams, I would probably think, yeah, I kind of understand where you're coming from with that. And when I say the, so I, so I'm clear for everybody listening. Cause when I say the associated press sports editors, that's an organization of journalists. And for instance, the athletic belongs to the associated press sports editors. Um, so does the Buffalo news and every major publication belongs to this organization. So it's not just, the Associated Press as an outlet that we're talking about. It's just, it's an organization. That's the name of the organization. That's how it was started. And they kind of, um, so yeah, I don't want to, I guess 
trying to give a little insight there well, as to, the, as to the how that works. The Press itself but, is a membership like that, even though they employ journalists to cover right. things and editors. The Associated Press is owned by the papers and the outlets, not owned by, but in some ways, yeah. they're just, uh, shareholders, stakeholders are the newspaper outlets that are in that membership. Yeah. And um, there is a, you're, the APSE code of ethics says that you, you, they leave it up to each outlet. Maybe I'll find it just so I can read it off. But you're not, they even say that you should strongly consider not voting on awards. Uh, that would be like, for instance, I know that when I was the chapter, uh, I was in charge of the Buffalo chapter of the uh, Pro Hockey Writers Association. It was my responsibility to decide who voted for, I was supposed to get a vote. And then there were other votes I could dole out to members of the PHWA to vote for all the awards that the PHWA handles. Um, the vet, no, the Vezina was GMs, but the Hart and the Norris and the Selkie and, you know, the all-star teams and all that stuff. Um, and the belief being, yeah, a newspaper should carefully consider the implications of voting for all awards and all-star teams and decide if such voting creates a conflict of interest. So it doesn't say that you can't do it or you shouldn't, but uh, the, uh, the Palm Beach Post, when I was there, they did not allow it. And the reason being for that, and you, you may be listening to this and saying, well, that seems kind of aggressive, but you could be deciding uh, whether or not a player gets a contract bonus of six figures or more. If you, you know, they have things in their contract. If they win an MVP, they get this bonus. If they get, make the all-star team, the, you know, or their next contract. Those are things that agents will use to leverage a team to get the next contract. If they make the Pro Bowl, uh, you know, those are, you know, obviously not media voted on awards, but there are a lot that are. The Hall of Fame, uh, Think of how much more money a guy makes after he gets in the Hall of Fame, when he gets on the autograph circuit, and he can sign those three little initials after his his signature. Um, you know, Alan Trammell, HOF, you know, whatever. Uh, but yeah, if you you can you can help make guy a lot of money, or deny him the chance to make a lot of money in your position as a journalist. So voting for the Heisman. Um, the AP top 25, um, all those things. I mean, you are determining a lot of money uh, and opportunity uh, with, uh, with your decisions. And so um, those are interesting things to consider too. You know, AP writers and editors don't vote in the AP polls or for the AP All-America teams and things like that. They, do, they organize the voting of you know, the, getting beat writers and people that cover the leagues and the teams and the conferences to do that. But an AP writer itself, himself or herself, does not make those votes. And a lot of people don't understand that. When I was covering Bonnet games and they'd fallen out of the rankings, but then they beat UB and maybe they were coming in, there were people kind of mentioning to me like, hey, we're going to get back in those rankings. You're going to talk to your AP buddies about that. And it's like, yeah, that's not how it works. Right. Well, that's a great segue, Jonah. Let's go right into uh, being on the bubble uh, for the, not the top 25, but maybe for the NCAA March Madness bracket, because um, a week ago, Joe Lenardi did not mention St. Bonaventure in his bubble reports. Uh, Joe Lenardi, the uh, ESPN bracketologist, who's always uh, incredibly accurate 
sharp with his uh, his forecasting of the tournament field. Last night I saw on ESPN St. Bonaventure is the first team out, uh, and that is because St. Bonaventure has won six in a row uh, after losing six out of ten going back to middle of December, um, including one of those losses was the number 15 UConn. Uh, and then an ugly non-conference loss to Virginia Tech, but they've they've straightened themselves out. Uh, they're going to host St. Joseph's uh, tomorrow, um, and we'll we'll take a spin around. But let's set it up one at a time. Um, let's start with St. Bonaventure, Jonah. Um, they are doing incredibly well, but they also are what fourth or fifth in the conference standing still. And there's some other teams that are. Uh, that are doing just as well. Let me just pull up those standings. Uh, yeah, uh, VCU four, has won yeah. six in a row. Dayton has won five in a row. Um, so St. Bonaventure right now, they're, you know, they're, they're obviously jockeying for seeds uh, in, the, uh, in the Atlantic 10 uh, Conference Tournament that's coming up here uh, in a couple of weeks. But, but where do you think uh, things stand for Mark Schmidt and his, uh, his crew with, what, uh, three games left in the regular season? three, potentially four if that George Washington game gets made up. Uh, with them in that top four now, I'm not so sure there will be a need for that game to be played. Uh, just to, not to correct you, but just so the, the listeners know, I'm looking at it. The latest Lenardi Bracketology has Vana as the sixth team out. They're in that, not the first four out, the next four out. But that is significantly higher than they have been before. I see. Trending okay. upwards. Um, all right. And they're behind Dayton. And the belief all year has been that the A-10 was a one-bid league and, and possibly would have been a two-bid league if Bono was that team when they were ranked that didn't make it in. But you see them trending up. I think they were eighth or ninth on that list a week ago and, you know, outside of that list two weeks ago. So you see them moving up as they keep on winning. And you see the A-10 with several teams uh, separating themselves at the top, maybe making the case to be a multi-bid league depending on who are those teams. I think it would, it would almost certainly be the team that loses in the final would possibly be the team that gets in. And if it's one of these hot teams going down the stretch, I think if Bonner were to perhaps win out in the regular season, go all the way to the Atlantic 10 title game and lose to, you know, say Dayton as that team, then Bonner might have an opportunity to sneak in. I think their resume would be very similar to the team a few years back with Jalen Adams that got in as an at-large and went to Dayton for the playing game. Um, if not, if you're one of the first four teams out, then you're almost certainly a number one seed for the NIT, which a lot of fans and, and people don't really like that consolation, but that's home game, potentially more than one home game, and perhaps making a run to the NIT semifinals and finals at MSG. I think that's a, for mid-major leagues, a, a cool thing when that happens. It hasn't happened with a local team since Kanishas went there in the mid-90s. Um, it would be maybe a disappointment from what the expectations were for this Bonnet thing. But I think if, if that were to happen, if this were a team that contended for an NIT championship, that would be a pretty memorable way to end this run for these seniors. But the, that aside, the fact that Bonnet has moved up into the bubble, has won six in a row and looks like a team that could finish the regular season perhaps on a nine-game winning streak or something close to that, it makes you think that they are one of the contending teams in the Atlantic 10 and can win the Atlantic 10 and can go into the NCAA tournament and maybe finish the season reaching the expectations that they started the season with and sort of dipped out of in late December. But you have to remember Kyle Lofton was injured, missed a couple of those games that they lost, or at least one of the games that they lost, came back and wasn't healthy in the game they lost against Virginia Tech. 
and probably took several weeks while he was still playing to get full strength and timing and rhythm in that ankle. And now you're seeing Bana playing to its full potential. And I think that you're seeing a team that can contend for the Atlantic 10 championship. They probably play better when they have that a little bit of underdog mentality. And maybe that was part of the reason why they didn't play up to their full potential earlier in the season when they were ranked in the top 25 and considered a, uh, you know, a team that was off the bubble, a team that was surely into the tournament without needing to win the Atlantic 10. But you can see there's other good teams in the Atlantic 10. It's going to be tough to win that conference for any of these top four teams. And maybe that's an argument for more than one Atlantic 10 team getting to the tournament. But because of the non-conference resumes and performance and power ratings and things like that, um, I don't know if it would be a surprise, but there's no guarantee that more than one Atlantic 10 team is going to get a bid to the NCAAs. They play VCU on Tuesday. That's a road game. At least I think it's a road game. Yeah, it is. Um, does that matter? I mean, we're so close to the A-10 tournament. There's only three regular season games left. VCU currently in second place. Maybe they'll even be in first place by then. I don't know. Um, I don't know what Davidson has uh, going for it. But um, does does the game at VCU on Tuesday matter? I mean, obviously, if they win that game, it helps their case uh, to to if they don't win the, the A-10 tournament. But, I mean, is it you just know, it, kind it, of for it, seeding right now? Could matter for seeding. It, it could matter if they lose on one end, they could fall below St. Louis into fifth and not have that double buy, which is not a situation that Bonaventure or any of these top teams want to be in. If they win, it looks like they're a game and a half behind VCU and they've already lost one of the contests against VCU. So perhaps that wouldn't vault them into the higher seed, but, oh no, they did. They beat VCU at home. So winning that game could help Bona get up to third in the A-10 standings if that matters. I don't know if it does, but you avoid Dayton in the semifinal round if that were to happen. Um, I think what matters is playing well going into the tournament. And if they keep winning, if they go into the tournament on a nine or 10 game winning streak, that would be good. And if they lose a game or they lose multiple games down the stretch and they lose some of their confidence and rhythm going into the tournament, that would not be good. So I think it matters more like any game does just in terms of what it means for that team and their collective belief and confidence and how well they're playing and, and they can play VCU again in the tournament. So how that game goes could influence one way or the other, how the next rematch goes in the tournament. A team that's going to have to win its conference uh, to get into the tournament, which is the case every year in the, well, pretty much every year in the mid American conference uh, university at Buffalo has won eight in a row. They are 18 and eight overall, 12 and four in the MAC. Uh, they won at Northern Illinois Thursday night, 79 to 68. Uh, rematch tomorrow afternoon in Alumni Arena. Uh, UB uh, also uh, finding a way to get going at just the right time, uh, heading into uh, Cleveland in a couple of weeks. Um, it should be noted, by the way, Kent State has won nine in a row. And uh, UB is going to play at Kent State next Friday in the regular season finale, heading right into that uh, that Cleveland tournament. Um, the yeah, Kent, uh, the Bulls. Kent State's the hottest team in the MAC because they've won nine in a row and also beaten some of the top teams during that time. I think Toledo was one of their wins. Maybe they've beaten Ohio as well. So UB um, should win nine in a row tomorrow if you know they they just beat this team at at Northern Illinois. Now they have them at Alumni Arena. 
So you're looking at uh, obviously two hot teams heading into this tournament. Does it much like the, the VCU Richmond discussion, or I should say the um, St. Bonaventure VCU discussion, um, you be closing with such a strong opponent heading into the tournament. Um, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, you sandbag that game or, or what, but. Uh, um, uh, no, bec- I'll tell you why it matters. It matters for all the reasons we just mentioned with Bonaventure right? for rhythm and confidence and things like that. What and why it matters. So let's assume Buffalo wins tomorrow against Northern Illinois. They get to nine in a row and um, they're already, this is the longest win streak they've had in three seasons under Jim White. So I think it's, they've had other good stretches, but they seem to be playing their best basketball over these last eight games. However, it's been against the bot, mostly the bottom, the bottom in the middle of the conference. They haven't played any of the other, top teams within this eight game winning streak or nine game winning streak. If it gets that far tomorrow next week, Tuesday, they play Toledo, which is the number one team in the Mac. That's a home game. That's going to be a big game for the bulls in terms of if they win that, that would be 10 games in a row. And the difference between nine and 10 game winning streaks is more significant than one game. That's a pretty significant number. When you get those things into double digits, it would also give them 20 wins for the season. So even if they don't win that game, if they win one of their games next season to close out the regular season, they get to 20 wins before the conference tournament, which is a bit of a significant benchmark. Um, the win, if you beat Toledo, that's the number one team in the conference that can give you belief that you can win the conference because right now UB, they've, so they're fourth in the league. They've lost to Toledo. They've lost to Ohio. They beat Kent State and they lost to Akron. So they're one and three against the other top five teams in the league. The, you know, the four, not including Buffalo being one of those teams. And it's probably going to be one of those five teams or two of those five teams are going to be playing in the finals. So as good as Buffalo is playing, as good as their record is, they still haven't really shown that they're in that top tier or that they are above that top tier. And if they get to nine wins in a row, but then they lose next week against Toledo and Kent State, then they're still in that level where, yeah, they're good. They're better than most of the conference, but they're not as good as the top teams. And maybe they don't get to the final or maybe you don't think that they can contend in Cleveland. But if they win, especially if they beat Toledo, but also if they beat Kent State, then you think this is a team that can beat the other good teams in the conference. And if they get hot and they make their shots, they could win in Cleveland. I think that Kent State win is very big. The Kent State game is very big because it's on the road. Kent State is traditionally one of the toughest places to play in the MAC. Buffalo's only won there once or twice in history or in a long time. And they, when they were very good with NATO a couple of years ago, they won there. And I think it was the first time in several years that, that they had won on the road against Kent State. And it could shape out to where that game could be the difference between the fourth seed and the third seed. And maybe it, that doesn't matter. Maybe playing Toledo in the semifinals is no different than playing Ohio in the semifinals and having to play Toledo the next night. But maybe on paper that is significant to be the third seed. You get a more winnable quarterfinal game. So if they do beat Toledo and it comes down to that, where that Kent State game is going to determine whether they're the third seed or possibly even the second seed if Ohio were to falter, um, you know, it's significant. And then if they go into the NCAA or the MAC tournament on an 11-game win streak, you would think this is the hottest team in the league. They've beaten Kent State, which was the other hottest team in the league. And you would, I think, like their chances of winning three games in Cleveland and going to the NCAA tournament. That would be a long stretch, though, because then at that point, they'd be on a 14-game winning streak. 
What's the outlook for more than one team getting in on the women's side in the Mid-American Conference? Does, uh, do, do the UB women have to win it? You know, it's, it's – let me look up the net numbers and where they are as of today. The, the short answer is the MAC has been a two-bid league in a couple of the past recent seasons. They expanded the tournament to 68 teams this year, so it is possible. Buffalo, at various points in the season, was looking like a team that might have a might have a resume to be an at-large team. They didn't really get too many of the non-conference wins that they needed. They beat Syracuse, but they lost the game against Princeton that I think was big for that. Um, Toledo is the best team in the MAC. Buffalo is oh, these are the men. Buffalo is the second best team in the MAC. And so it's possible. It's not impossible like it might be for a team on the men's side. But I do think that it's not, it's not a foregone conclusion. I mean, if they win out and they get to that MAC title game and they lose to Toledo, I think it's something that they could watch the selection show and think that they have a chance. But I don't think it's something where they're in the field and – off the bubble quite yet. They're, they're probably one of those first four, next four teams out at this point, and we'll see how things develop over the last couple of weeks of the season, but it's not a, a guarantee right now. I, I don't know if anybody can tell I'm stalling while I look up the net rankings right now, because I think <laughs> that would be something that's significant. They're 77 down from 76. They're at 19 and eight, so they're going to be pretty close to, they're going to get that 20 win mark before the conference tournament. 77, if you just go purely based on the rankings, is outside of, you know, the 68-team field. But if they keep winning, you know, they could get to that point. Probably hurts them that if they were in a position to beat Toledo in the semifinals and then get to the final and maybe lose to somebody else, that might give them the quality win that they need. Had they beaten Toledo earlier in the season, that might have done the same thing. There's not, there aren't, there aren't any opponents left that really give them a push. If they were to win. Right. Yeah. So Unless they meet in the tournament. Now, I don't know how much higher they can get. And I don't know if even getting to about 70 is because it's not like in the NCAA division two tournament, they go strictly based on how these rankings are. And if you're top eight in your region, you're in this way the the net rankings are used as a factor, but it isn't the pure determining factor. And it looks more at kind of your record against other good teams and, and how the net influences that. and you know, so I think that they're probably just outside the field, but they're also, this is as good of a UB women's team as I've ever seen. And they've won this league three times before, or I think twice they've won it. And once they went to the tournament as an at-large bid, so they could win the Mac and they could go to the NCAA tournament that way. And as mentioned with Bonaventure, they're probably a team that gets into the women's NIT if they don't make it to the Mac and might be a high seeded team that gets a home game. And that might be a, fun run for this UB women's team if they don't win the Mac and don't make it to the NCAA tournament. I want to talk about Niagara's men before we go. Uh, winners of four of their last six. Uh, of course, that includes uh, Canisius last Saturday. And uh, bigger than that, uh, a while, a little back further, uh, Iona. Uh, they're 12 and 13, seven and nine in the conference. Obviously middle of the pack. Uh, Canisius for the record uh, in dead last um, and struggling, but, um, I just wanted to, I, I'm not talking tournament for Niagara, but I, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on Niagara as a program and its evolution? What do you see 
Uh, do you see anything taking hold in terms of momentum or is middle of the pack what we're what we should expect or they may or maybe they're even playing above their heads maybe they're not even as good as their record indicates i don't know you i'm i'm asking you because uh, you you've covered these guys uh and, and have seen them play yeah well there's there were varying expectations about this team i think they were picked 10th in the coaches poll coming into the season and a lot of people thought that was way too low for a team that was bringing everybody back and is an older team and does have some talented players some talented scorers Marcus Hammond uh he was leading the Mac in scoring I believe he still might be I'd have to look up and see if that's still the case and they've had a pretty good season but they've never been over 500 this season every time they get to 500 they lose that next game right now they're a game behind 500 with two road games coming up this weekend on the road against Ryder and St. Peter's. St. Peter's is one of the better teams in the conference. So what I've always been watching is can they get some consistency to actually get over the hump, get over 500, and maybe be a team that if they come into the MAC tournament with a middle-of-the-pack record and a middle-of-the-pack seed, but they've been winning games and you think they're a little bit better than that. They have that win over Iona, which is clearly the best team in the conference. So you think maybe they can pull off that upset again in the MAC tournament. It's just whenever they seem like they are turning a corner and, and bubbling up into that top of the conference, then they have a bad loss or they have a loss where they don't score any points. And you wonder why a team with good offensive talent and a coach that was a point guard and you would think offense would be the strength of the team, they have trouble scoring on certain nights. And I just wonder why they haven't really found that consistency with an old veteran team. They've clearly shown that they're better than Canisius and that they're capable of beating Iona on a good day when they were making their shots and they scored 81 points, but they haven't been able to get over that hump. They've never been over 500. And some people I think thought with everybody coming back and Greg Paulus is the coach that this team was really going to make a jump and be a contending team in the Mac and Greg Paulus, the athletic called him, you know, one of the 40 under 40 names to watch in college basketball. And I think Greg Paulus is a good coach. that's done a good job here, but I think he's gotten too much credit too soon for things that haven't happened yet with Niagara. And I'm still waiting for those things to happen. Such as? Such as having a winning record and contending for the league title. And maybe, maybe Iona with Rick Patino and the recruits and transfers he brought in are too good to actually beat. They won the tournament last year and most people think they're going to do it again. But Niagara would need to be that second or third team and be the team that you think might knock off Iona, I think, to really say Greg Paulus has turned this program around and should be getting looks at the next level. Because we've seen Niagara be a championship team in the MAC and with Joe Mahalik, a team that was contending for the MAC championship year in and year out. So I think that's the standard for somebody turning this Niagara program around and bringing it back up. And maybe Greg Paulus does do that but I don't think it's happened yet with this team and it's an older team. I'm not sure how many of these seniors, a lot of them will have the option of coming back. I'm not sure how many of them will. So it might be a rebuilding season a bit next year. So this is the team I think that should be pushing into that top three, top four. And if my own is too good to beat, then I think the standard for having a really good season would be making that final and being the team that at least has a chance to knock off Iona on that. I guess it's Saturday night. This year. It used to be a Monday night thing. What do you think happens if Iona doesn't win the championship? Is there any chance Iona could still get into the tournament and the Metro ends up with two teams in the, in the no, tournament? No, there was some talk about that before they lost to Niagara and, and then they lost to Siena the next game they played. Uh, and 
Iona, so they beat Alabama, which is a top 25 team. And they had, but they had their other non-conference losses, Belmont, which is a good team, Kansas, if they had won that game, I think they'd have the record, the resume for an at-large bid, perhaps. And they lost to St. Louis, which, as we talked about earlier, is the fifth team in the A-10 right now. And it's all based on your non-conference. I mean, you can go 20-0 and 0 in the MAC, and that's not going to get you into the NCAA tournament. But if you have quality wins in the non-conference, and even quality wins plus if only your losses are against good opponents, then you have that potential. But the, I think the Rick Pitino cachet can't it won't. No, maybe if they were the contrary to what I just said, maybe if they were undefeated in the MAC and going in with some sort of. 21-22 game winning streak and their gotcha. only losses were against Belmont, Kansas, and Kentucky or Belmont, Kansas, and St. Louis, then perhaps they would get in. But I think that win over Alabama did a lot for them. They would have needed to probably either beat Kansas or have Kansas been, have been their only loss. And then I think that maybe Iona. Iona's gotten at-large bids a long time ago. So it happens in the MAC every once in a while but it's very rare the mac the mac with two a's is lower than the mac with one a it's harder to do it from that league and the mac the mid-american conference hasn't had a team get an at-large bid in a very long time buffalo might have gotten that a couple years ago if they didn't win the league but they're one bid leagues and and even with rick patino you'd have to be something like 30 and 2 i think to to be a metro atlantic conference team and get that kind of consideration uh, regarding Canisius, um, you know, uh, weird situation, I think. Uh, you know, Canisius is a, is a proud institution, and uh, obviously they don't, they don't pay um, Big Ten or SEC dollars to their coaches. Uh, full disclosure, I am an adjunct professor at Canisius College, um, but I'm not saying this with any kind of insight. Um, Reggie Witherspoon uh, is, uh, uh, by all accounts, highly respected coach in Western New York, legendary Western New York coach. Um, But Canisius is in last place. But I don't think that Canisius can do better than Reggie Witherspoon. Um, So what what happens there? What what do you think? I mean, I I guess you'd maybe just keep going with Reggie for as long as he wants to do it, but... Um, I don't know. At what point I'll do, tell you what I, do they what feel I like they need to that. make a change? Well, I think the, the most significant thing that now Canisius plays at Iona tonight, and that's a big opportunity for them to either get a signature win, it would be their first world win, or even if it's a close loss, they had a close loss at home, and that was kind of an impressive result for how well they played in the second half. If they can do that again on the road, that might be a bit of a moral victory for a team that's lost seven of the last eight games and hasn't won a road game all season long. As far as Reggie Witherspoon, I don't really think he's on the hot seat to get fired after this season. There was a bit of a rumor coming out of last season that he might have been on, you know, thin ice and might be soon to be fired. And when I was checking out about that, I heard, no, he either got a contract extension or there was talks about a contract extension that might have not been announced, a little bit of a secret re-up. So he wasn't. Dick Duran situation. Right. It might have been, you know, it's happened a couple of years ago with Niagara and Chris Casey. Sometimes a coach who's not completely popular with the fan base gets a contract extension and the school doesn't necessarily want to advertise that. It also might have been a contract extension they were talking about that didn't get agreed upon. I never really got that 
confirmed whether there was an actual contract extension on paper or not. But, but the, the conundrum, Jonah, like you say, an unpopular coach, I, I would see that Reggie would be popular. He's not winning, of course. And that's fans the, the bottom on the line. Board, there, but there's, there's a vocal segment of the fan base that isn't happy with I see. the state of the program and wants to see. But they might have unrealistic expectations. As you said, what yeah. coach are they going to bring in that's better? I think, you know, Canisius, when they hired Jim Barron, was considering Bobby Hurley. And that sort of led to the Danny White hearing that Bobby Hurley might be interested in coaching at uh, this type of level and led to Bobby Hurley being the Buffalo coach at one point. So I think that there's some in the fan base that think, you know, let's go after the next Bobby Hurley or something like that and let's build this program up. But what I'm leading into is so the significant and I'm guessing was, I'm and I'm guessing they see what's happening at Niagara too, and it seems like why can't we at least be that? Why can't we at right. least be middle of the pack? I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. And Greg Paulus being a name and Niagara kind of stumbled into Greg Paulus being Pat Beeline's assistant. And there were, you know, it's interesting that Greg Paulus having come from coaching at Ohio state and Xavier and some of these bigger programs was even available to be Pat Beeline's assistant at Niagara, but it happened that way. And it's worked out well for Niagara. Yeah. I do think there's Canisius fans that look at and be like, we'd like that, you know, sexy name, young coach, However, I think the significant thing that's happened in this regard is that Canisius today named its new president, Steve K. Stout, I believe is his name. He played soccer at Seton Hall. So he's a, an athletics, I don't want to call him an athletic supporter, but he's a supporter of athletics. It is believed, which is significant because there's always been behind the scenes rumblings, both at Canisius and Niagara, that maybe these schools can't afford Division One athletics and maybe there might come a time when they need to shrink the program and go down to the Division Two or Division Three level or something of that sort. And in a way, Canisius is still competing at Division One without a Division One budget. I think that's part of the reason why Canisius struggles because the recruiting budget and the money to pay assistance and the facilities makes it hard for them to recruit and compete with the other schools on their level. And Niagara has some of those same issues. You know, Canisius struggles in a lot of sports, not just men's basketball. What I think eventually happens with Reggie Witherspoon in the coaching position at Canisius is I don't think this current AD Bill Maher will fire him unless things really go off the rails next season. But I think with a new president will eventually lead to a new athletic director and a new athletic director will want to make his mark and make his own hire and something will happen it might be Reggie Witherspoon deciding that the time has come for him to retire or a mutual. How old is Reggie? Made. Do you know? I could look it up, but I would say just off the top of my head, thinking about when he played at ECC, that he's late fifties going on 60. Okay. So, you know, he could be approaching retirement age. He could be approaching a point where they move him into an athletics department role where he's an ambassador for the program and a fundraiser. He's 61. Okay and going to be turning, or no, just turned 61 this past week. So I don't know if that's retirement age right now, but maybe in a couple of years it gets close. He's got that pension from working into the state system at UB and ECC before that. So if he wanted to retire, I think, you know, or maybe he doesn't want to retire. Maybe it doesn't work out with Canisius and he coaches at a smaller level where he can recruit more local players. I think he could do very well at, you know, Duville's a new team in Division Two that's going to, I think, need a new coach at some Go point. Go head-to-head with Mike McDonald. 
something like that. Get the whole band back together. Former Canisius coach that has really found success at lower levels. And I don't think that means that Mike McDonald couldn't be successful at Division I program, but Division II and Division Three schools with recruiting locals and the type of players that Mike McDonald seems to like to coach, it does seem like those lower levels fit his style a little bit better. And that might be the case with Reggie Witherspoon. But Reggie Witherspoon did a, had some very good teams, recruited some very good players at Buffalo. Less success at Canisius, but I think he's recruited some good players. The problem has been keeping players. His best player is transferred out of the program most often than not. And that's really been the issue, not having continuity with good players coming back. And this season, whether it's been injuries or there was some virus situations, they've been the good players have been in and out of the lineup. They've never really found the rotation. He's still tinkering with the starting lineup. That's another thing that's going on with Niagara a little bit. They haven't really settled on a starting lineup in a rotation. Whereas you look at UB, I think that's a big reason why they're having success is that they're starting the same five every night and they're bringing the same guys off the bench in the same roles and people are thriving in their roles and knowing, and really at UB they're playing the starters almost all of the minutes, but Bonaventure too. When you have the rotation settled in, teams tend to play better down the stretch when that's the case. Canisius and to a lesser extent Niagara are not in that point right now. And that's what happens when you don't win. You tinker with the lineups and the rotation and things like that. So in a long-winded way, I don't think the end is near with Reggie Witherspoon and Canisius, but I can see the end in the distance with a new president, probably eventually a new athletic director, and then coaching changes. But you see the women's program, they've made one change was on their own. They fired Terry Zay and hired a new coach, and then Scott Hemmer uh, quit, and they made another new hire. And I think they're happy with the current coach there, but they're not winning games. And so with what they pay and, and the resources and the facilities, it's going to be hard for Canisius to find a better coach than what they already have. Although they might, they might get a young coach that wants to prove himself, but then he'll be gone quickly if he does well. I think that the advantage of having Reggie Witherspoon at Canisius is even if they win, he's not going to have his eyes on moving on to the next level. Right. It's an unusual situation because when you see sustained losses like they've had at Canisius, you start to wonder, okay, how much longer can this guy last? But this guy (laughs) is perfect for them in so many ways that, uh, and I don't think that they can do better. I mean, like you said, we just, we just went through the whole thing. Yes. You can get somebody who's better, but the, the purpose of getting that young guy is he, he's not there to stay. Uh, he's, he's there. You're a stepping stone for him. Uh, whereas, well, although let's not to say that this would maybe Reggie took this as a stepping stone too, when he first signed up for it. But um, I think there were times at UB when, Reggie thought he'd be, if they kept winning, maybe move on and challenge himself at a higher level. But I think at this point, at his age and living in Buffalo for most of his life and with his daughters grown and having grandchildren, I don't think he would be moving on to the next rung on the ladder if he won a championship. Yeah. How, I think how about the, this? Just out, out of curiosity, I mean, just to throw a name out there. What, what about Mike McDonald? I mean, Canisius. Yeah, for Canisius, I don't think yeah. Canisius is going to hire a coach that they already fired. I think, but that Canisius was ancient do a history. Lot worse than Mike McDonald. I think that he could succeed there, but I thought Mike McDonald would be a good candidate for the Niagara job at various points in time. Yeah, we and talked I about was that. Told behind the scenes that Niagara wouldn't hire a coach that was fired by Canisius. That maybe that just looks like that just looks bad for Niagara and the search committee. 
Um, I think Mike McDonald has had enough success at Division Two and Division Three levels that if he wants to, he deserves another chance to coach at the Division One level. I'm not so sure that one of the local schools are the right fit for that, Canisius or Niagara. Maybe St. Bonaventure, which he's a graduate of, if Mark Schmidt were to get another job. You know, that's something that we that came up every time we talked about Bonner last year, and I haven't heard anybody ask me this year about Mark Schmidt moving on and getting another job. I don't know if he's not in that mix anymore, but I think he's still an excellent coach that deserves that opportunity somewhere. And I don't know why that talk has died down. Probably because, because they're not in the, because t- they lot, they slipped back out of the top 25. Um, I think when you're considered the hot candidate for a little while, you people just get tired of it and, and don't, they, they, they're looking for the next guy they can put on that list because they want to be smart and they want to come up with new names. Um, I think that Mark Schmidt should be just as much of a candidate now as he was last year. Well, with the only knock being he's one year older, and sometimes programs don't want to hire a coach of that age. They want to go for the younger coach who's who's still on a little more on the rise or has established himself as as a up and comer. But Mark Schmidt's done a done a fine job, and I think it's a. But it's also you know like I mentioned earlier, they lost the the six out of ten from December into into, into late January, I think it was, and they were an afterthought in the A-10. And so they, they've been off the grid a little bit. So out of sight, yeah. out of mind. And like you said, I think as good as Bonaventure has been in recent seasons, they haven't won an NCAA tournament game. And that's sometimes what really gets mid-major coaches on the radar, that if you are moving on to the second round or the Sweet 16, then there's a whole week of coverage about this hot coach from a mid-major and, and whether he's going to be in the candidate, because that's when jobs start opening up too. the big schools start right. that are out of the tournament, fire their coaches. And they start talking about Shaka smart when he was at VCU being a candidate for going on to one of these places. So, and that could still happen. I mean, Bonaventure could get into the tournament winning the a 10 as a 12 seed and not be considered quite as much of a upset. It wouldn't be an upset pick, but you know what I mean? Not as hot of a team going into the tournament as they yep. were last year as a nine seed, but then win that game and maybe pull off another win and go to the Sweet 16 unexpectedly, and that could launch the, uh, you know, Mark Schmidt as a hot name for a new job. There is probably way too much emphasis put on it, but it's a real thing. Uh, When a new coach is hired, the school and the team, it doesn't have to even be at the college level, at the professional level, is so intent on winning that uh, introductory news conference. Mm -hmm. And if you can have a guy who was just on television on CBS uh, with his team, even if it's for a game, but yes, or for a game or two, and you can say, look at this guy, he was just in the tournament. And uh, so get excited, everybody. We're going there too. If I'm not mistaken, Nate Oates has a losing record against Mark Schmidt, if not a 500 record, but because Buffalo had those NCAA tournament wins and was, you know, in the national conversation a bit more. Nate Oates was considered that win the press conference higher that maybe Mark Schmidt isn't at that level right now or, or hasn't been yet. Yeah. Well, it's good talk about basketball, Jonah. I hope, hopefully that was uh, refreshing for you after the way we started, you know, talking about the NFL and getting under your, <laughs> yeah, your skin a little bit. You feel better? I feel better, but it's still you turn on SportsCenter and you're still going to see NFL offseason talk before you get into some of the NBA and NHL coverage. And I miss the days when it felt like 
you know, you took a break from the NFL and focused on other sports for a while. And then when football comes back, people always say that, like, I miss football all summer long. It's like, what do you miss? We've been thinking about and talking about this season all day, all summer long. Well, one thing that you can do uh, is uh, go to Amherst Pizza and Ale House to watch all the college and pro games, all the basketball you want, all the hockey you want. You can avoid the NFL although I'm guessing that one or two of the TVs still will be on the NFL network there because they have so many TVs. Uh, Amherst Pizza and Ale House at 55 Cross Point Parkway in Getzville. That's right off of Millersport Highway in the 990. Uh, indoor and out on the patio. And I bring that up. It's not a good day as I'm speaking right now, but we were in the mid-50s. I think we almost hit 60 degrees earlier this week. That probably would have been a good day to go check out uh, Amherst Pizza and Ale House patio, have a couple of beers, get some uh, fresh air. Recognized by ESPN.com as Western New York's top spot to watch sports. Uh, stop in or call for takeout and delivery. 716-625-7100. One more time. Grab your pen. I'll go slower. Amherst Pizza and Ale House takeout and delivery. 716-625-7100. I'll give the address one more time. 55 Cross Point Parkway in Getzville. Amherst Pizza and Ale House. I heard you were there the other night watching AEW Dynamite. I was not. I was not. Uh, but I, I did tape it. I'm going to go check. I'm going to check that out probably later today. Had, uh, had a good discussion with, my, uh, with our friend Ryan Stitt, uh, who also is a, uh, a wrestling fan and uh, was uh, discussing some of the local, the local wrestlers. Um. Anyways, we'll talk about that on a different episode. Maybe we'll start getting some wrestlers on the show. They're always fun to talk to. The most popular episode of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK was Lex Luger in terms of uh, views, downloads, comments, subscribers, all that stuff. And it's not even close. Well, it's a fascinating discussion. It's not like we were just talking wrestling with Lex Luger. Larry Fole. We Got should have him on again. To go power slam a power window washer. <laughs> he did. He gave him uh, the, uh, he put him in the rack the, with the torture rack. That was his signature move, right? Right. Yep. See, I'm learning things. Uh, Jonah, thanks as always. This and, was fun. Uh, back to back, two days in a row. I know it. I know it. Well, we got to give the people what they want. Going to have to get in the ice bath after this. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is more than just a full service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara community through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2020 and 2021 to keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400, and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you.